0: Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward shop. I'm Chrissy Goldrick and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Tim Jarvis is an environmental scientist, a polar explorer, mountaineer, filmmaker and successful author, as well as a sustainability expert. He was the first person to be awarded both Adventurer of the Year and Conservationist of the Year by the Australian Geographic Society and he's a member of the Order of Australia. He's in demand as a public speaker and a leadership trainer, and he's an outspoken advocate of the urgent need to find practical solutions to climate change and other environmental problems. He's traversed icy waste, survived freezing perilous oceans and hot, dry deserts. And he's been described by the Australian Museum as an adventurer who never chooses the easy road. And I'm thrilled to welcome Tim Jarvis to Talking Australia. Hello Tim.
1: Hi there Chrissy. how are things?
0: Yeah good, good to see you again. You too, you too. <laughs> now Tim, um, uh, you're known to us and to our readers and you have been for many years as an adventurer, in particular a polar adventurer. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that today, uh, always a fascinating topic for us and, and for our readers and our listeners. Uh, but we'll also talk about your role in uh, advocating for climate change, for action on climate change. This is really how things have evolved for you. You're, you know, that, that mix of adventure and conservationist, and it, it's kind of be, going to be interesting to talk to you about, you know, how those two things fit together.
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting point. They sort of began as one, um, moved apart and are now well and truly back yeah. together again. It's a very, very good way of communicating climate change is to use the adventures yeah. as a way to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I think when you are com- com- sort of communicating quite sort of difficult concepts some of the ways in which you can get the attention of people through those adventures, these great epic adventures, uh, means that it's, it, it makes getting the message across a little bit easier, I think, or you can engage people's attention better.
1: I think so. It's kind of a metaphor, isn't it? And people like storytelling. And um, sometimes if you're talking about a subject which can be perceived as being a bit threatening, like, you know, a business's impact on the climate, um, if you're talking... Using some other subject matter as the point of discussion, like an expedition, they can have that conversation that they know is about them, you know is about them, but you're both pretending it's about something else, and you can have a more frank discussion. Um, so it does work very well.
0: Yeah. Now you've witnessed the effects of climate change at both extremes of the planet the north and the south polar regions but interestingly you've also witnessed it in the equatorial regions of the world in fact at latitude 0 look i'm not even sure that very many of us even knew that there was there were icy areas right in the middle of the planet along the equator so tell us a little bit about some of the adventures that you've had there and what where are these mountains why are they icy places right in the hottest parts of the world
1: well it's a very good point Uh, um you're right i spent a lot of time in the polar regions and i think most people anticipate that there is ice there and that ice there is under threat by the by the effects of climate change that we're probably responsible for it so that bit is kind of reasonably easy for people to grasp but it doesn't necessarily grab the attention of political leaders the media and the corporate world you need some point of difference that makes people sit up and notice and the um the penny dropped for me five or six years ago that you need a an unlikely place where there is still glacial ice where you can tell the story of the human impacts of climate change on it and the place i went for was the equator where you have these uh, 25 mountains that have a glacier and um you know the Media immediately sit up and go, what do you mean there's a glacier at the equator? Whereabouts? And Mm. you've got them hooked. Once you've got that initial door opening moment, you can then have a discussion about what the likely plight of those glaciers is, what it means for local people. Then you've got numerous stories to tell in a place which is very, very heavily populated by people often who don't have the capacity to react to the change that's coming. Whereas if you pick the Arctic and the Antarctic, the Arctic, yes, you've got indigenous people for sure, but they're often very well adapted to, uh, to, to, to the climate in which they operate. Antarctica has no people apart from scientists and tourists who go there for, for brief periods of time. But the equator really unlocks things for people. You know, and you talk about ice in the ruinsori mountains of Uganda, And then you talk about the fact that ice is disappearing very, very quickly and come out with stories of people who've been impacted and it's a very powerful, powerful combination.
0: Mm, So in some ways people were finding out there was ice there at the same time they found out that the ice was endangered and probably wouldn't be there in 20 years' time. That's a really right. shocking kind of concept to try and absorb, really, isn't
1: it? It is shocking, and, uh, you know, the byline of the project is, you know, we won't save these glaciers, what else are we prepared to lose? Because the ice is disappearing uh, so quickly that, with the exception of one or two of the highest mountains, maybe the tip of Kilimanjaro, uh, Chimborazo in Ecuador, uh, the top of Cotopaxi in Ecuador, they may retain a little bit of their ice just purely because they're very, very high. Chimborazo's 6,370 metres, so very, very high. Uh, but the rest, unfortunately, that ice is doomed, and, and, and the project allows you to tell the story of the decline of that ice and for people to witness it for themselves in kind of real time because this, this lot's disappearing in the next 15 to 20 years, and you can document it and you can instill a sense of urgency where it might have been lacking.
0: And I guess that's the thing. It's it's a very it's visual, isn't it? I mean, because I mean, when we try and visualise climate change, it's quite difficult to do. But you've got comparative photographs of some of these glaciers. I think Mount Stanley is one of them, where there were as a photograph from about nineteen ten. Yeah, yeah and, and you can. It's really. It, it's it's very impactful when you can actually see it with your own eyes in that way.
1: You know, it's absolutely right. I mean, I challenge anybody to see. 405 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's mm. not a visual thing. And yet we as humans are driven by, by what we can see. You know, seeing is after all believing. And um, if you can attribute the changes you're seeing to these glaciers to us, then the change is very easy to see. We've got historical photographs. You can compare it. Um, Mount Stanley is the largest ice cap in Africa, in fact bigger than all the others put together. And that is declining extremely quickly.
0: Mm. Mm. It's really powerful. Now, you got your idea about visiting these equatorial glaciers when you were on South Georgia and what you saw there was because you were recreating Shackleton's traverse of South Georgia at the end of his um, uh, survival uh, trip from Elephant Island. We will talk about that in a little while. But you got your idea when you were really down in those Antarctic regions and it's really for your... Polar adventures in the in the southern part of the world that we got to know you in the first place. So can we sort of go back to some how how all that came about and talk about some of those early adventures of yours um, in 1999, I think, which is when we sort of first found out about you or, or got to know you. Uh, you manhauled a, a sled all the way to the geographic South Pole. So tell us about that adventure. Was that your first? sort of venture into these sort of parts of these regions of the world and, and why the South Pole and and, and, and and you know, what effect did that have on you? Because it sort of changed or, or altered the course of your life to the one that you're on now, really, did it?
1: it? really did. Look, I'd come from the old mother country originally and uh, come here to work as a scientist in Australia and I'd done a couple of Arctic trips prior to that, Spitsbergen and up in Arctic, Norway, but had never been to the Antarctic and, in fact, moved to uh, Adelaide to work as a scientist, and Adelaide is the home of Douglas Mawson. That you know, even though you wouldn't think of it as a sort of Antarctic place, John Rimel is from there. Um, uh, Douglas Mawson is from there. Um, Hubert Wilkins is from there, and so sort of three out of the four of you, if you mm-hmm. think of um, you know um, Hurley as being the fourth in that kind of yeah. group of famous pioneers of Antarctic uh, exploration from Australia, you know, three of them are from Adelaide. So I found. You know, that um, Antarctica was drawing me in and uh, made a bid to cross the place on foot, um, unsupported, got to South Geographic Pole in what was then a sort of record time, I guess. But the it wasn't about records. It was about getting there quickly to make sure the food lasted for a bid to cross <laughs> the whole thing, which ultimately wasn't successful. Um, food became contaminated. But that then sort of set the scene for other opportunities. And um, somebody had suggested I might try and defend Mawson's honour um, Mawson had been accused by some of uh, needing to cam- cannibalise the second man who died in his arms on an expedition that had gone wrong. And guess what? I'm the same size as Mawson. And someone <laughs> said, well, why don't you do it with the food that he said he had without the need to eat, uh, in my case, the increasingly nervous Russian guy who, with whom I travelled, who was the kind of the, <laughs> the, 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 the you know, the, the full guy. Um, he was extracted at the same, you know, point in the expedition that, that the the original guy dying for Mawson, Mawson trudged on and made it and so did I, but it was, uh, took a fairly brutal toll on the body and the mind and um, I like to feel that, that we proved Mawson's innocence and that then led to the Shackleton expedition where someone's saying, well you've done something wearing period clothes, suffering, why don't you try, try another of those? So um, back down I went to, uh, to attempt Shackleton's journey.
0: Now, when so that the this idea of the historically accurate kind of recreations of these things probably sounded good when you were sitting, maybe planning it at home. But tell us about what that actually means for someone who's down there in these um, really unforgiving places.
1: Well, that's right. Look, there's no point trying to, um, you know, shed light on what happened on Mawson's original trip if you were in Gore Tex with a sat phone and, you know, doing things mm. differently. You've got to don the you know, the woolens and the leather boots and the cotton smocks and eat the uh, pemmican, which is essentially sort of lard. You've got to traditionally navigate. You've got to pull a wooden sled. It's got to be the same weight. You've got to really suffer, as they do, inhaling the kerosene fumes off your primus stove and and really doing it the way they did. Otherwise, the experiment is invalid. And um, I tell you what, there are many, many things that are difficult and challenging about those chips. One of the biggest ones is the fact that you as a modern person know that all the technology that we've developed in the 100 years since those original trips exists, but you've chosen to deprive yourself <laughs> of using it. And that is psychologically really difficult when, when times are tough, you're frostbitten, malnourished, hungry, a bit depressed on your own, trying to keep yourself going mentally and you realize that you've just made these things infinitely more difficult for yourself by just depriving yourself. And um, so the Mawson trip was very tough with Shackleton involved rebuilding the boat, learning to traditionally navigate, uh, wearing the same old clothes, eating the same food, and out in the Southern Ocean in a big storm,
0: had the yeah, you were questioning question? It it. Again. You question it But this time you weren't alone. So let's just go. Just roll back to, to the Mawson one. So Mawson's, um, I suppose, survival trip is one of the great survival trips or uh, expe- uh, expe- experiences of all time. But it's not as well known as Shackleton. Uh, and is, was that also part of why you did it? Because of his, for his reputation? I mean, I know you were trying to prove that he didn't eat. Um, Mertz or whoever it was it was Mertz that was left wasn't it after Ninnis yeah, uh, went yeah. down the crevasse um, but also you know is it partly because of to, to, to raise the profile of Mawson as, as a, as, because really what he did he did alone I mean w- really quite an incredible achievement and then was still stuck in uh, Commonwealth Bay for another year even after he got back after that survival journey of 500 miles or whatever it was that he, that he walked
1: yeah, look, uh, look. Had, had Mawson been a Brit or a Norwegian or an American, um, I think it's fair to say that he probably would have had more recognition, particularly in those countries. Um, and, you know, having moved to Adelaide, I mean, I was, I was absolutely amazed that his story was not more well-known. I remember the old balaclava-clad face of Mawson's on stamps I used to collect when I was a small kid growing up in, in Asia. I remember thinking, you oh, know, who is this guy? So I had a vague notion who he was but I was amazed that his his incredible journey of survival just hadn't been told so there was definitely an element mm. of wanting to redress the balance and his descendants who are the McEwans and the and the Thomases he had two daughters and obviously they you know at the time they assumed their husband's name so the Mawson name is kind of gone but the, the relatives live on and they were very modest um you know upstanding people um with whom I enjoyed a really good relationship. And I really mm. wanted to just defend Mawson's honour and shed some light on an yeah. incredible expedition, not really do the cannibalism thing. Mm. That was really a almost a kind of media construct. Yeah. And I had to run with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were very happy with the way it all panned out. And i like to think we... Uh, we got his name out there in lights like he deserves. So.
0: Yeah, very good. And so that led you to the invitation from a descendant of Shackleton to do the, another one of these historic. Was there a bit of your sort of heart that sank at the idea of doing it again and getting lashed, wearing those that clothing that really doesn't protect you at all, or not well, not enough? To, or were you excited about
1: it? Just as an aside, I went to see a broadcaster a couple of years ago and uh, was pitching a, an idea for an environmental sort of show, if you like, and they said, aren't you the guy who always suffers wearing the old <laughs> gear? So I'm well and truly sort of typecast in yeah. the sort of B-movie role. But the, um, I'd, I'd done Mawson and I'd got to know Alexandra Shackleton, who's Sir Ernest's granddaughter, and she's sort of the, the keeper of the flame for, for yeah. Shackleton. Um, she manages the whole Shackleton estate and defends his honour and all that sort of stuff. And I'd met her in 2000. In London at an event. And so I'd got to know her, and she had been sort of hinting strongly that knowing I was planning the Mawson expedition in the mid 2000s, that, you know, if it went well, why not look at her grandfather's uh, trip? Um, So as soon as I finished the Mawson trip in 2006, the first call I got from her was one congratulating me and then saying, well, how about it? You know. Yeah. And I was honored to be asked.
0: Yeah. And uh, so that took up the next few years of your life, uh, planning that trip, because you had to recreate the the boat. I mean, the the story of Shackleton is very well known. We're not going to go through it again here, but uh, I suppose suffice to say that you it wasn't trekking across the uh, icy wastes it was actually going to be a boat trip that you took from elephant island to south georgia and then followed by a a traverse of south georgia over the uh, top of that um, island which can be on a good day a very pleasant place on a bad day a place you really don't want to be so there was some sort of more sort of technical aspects i suppose of of building a, a replica boat and getting a crew together and Uh, And also then, you know, you've got all the sort of, uh, I suppose, the logistical things of making a movie about it. So, you know, that always goes along with these adventures is the story that you need to tell afterwards. So um, tell us a little bit about how all that came together and and were you the expedition leader on that?
1: That's right. And um, I'd been asked, uh, I said yes. Um, I think it's fair to say that Shackleton's granddaughter, who's still a very dear friend, is not a person to whom you say No. When she said, will you, she really meant you will. It was a sort of rhetorical yeah. question. Um, but you're right, it took many years to plan it. And the, one of the things that really excited me about it, apart from the fact that it's, it's you know, according to Benjamin Hillary, the greatest survival journey of all time, was the fact that for me as a person, it was a totally different exercise. I mean, I guess I'd become something of a, uh, you know, if there is an area of expertise, I've got pulling heavy objects over ice caps. Mm. Um, and this wasn't about that. This mm. is about... Constructing a replica boat And escaping from the Antarctic Followed by mountaineering So it didn't really play to my strengths Second bit a bit more than the first But I was probably the worst sailor on the boat Mm. In the end And um, it was just a fascinating exercise Remaking everything Uh, Learning to traditionally navigate with a sextant On a pitching boat um, Wearing non-waterproof clothes Mm. Designed for a crossing of the driest Windiest (laughs) continent Not an open boat trip And... um, you know, even in the most miserable points, it was fascinating to me, the whole exercise.
0: And you weren't alone. So, this was you, you were actually leading a group. And so, were there sort of moments in that that you were thinking about men like uh, Douglas Mawson and Ernest Shackleton and, and, and about the sort of, I suppose, the nature of, of leading a group of people, about the nature of leadership itself, and what set these? particularly these two men, uh, apart and, and allowed them to achieve and survive, really, and and also for other people to survive as a result of their sort of leadership qualities? Was that something that you you probably didn't have much time to reflect on it, I'm sure, during, but was it something that you thought about?
1: Yeah, you don't find yourself asking that question, what was the difference between them and one another and me and how am I going to do yeah. this, but it definitely was a totally different challenge for me I mean for a start you've got a very high caliber team of people to do this thing and you've got to try and retain your credibility in the eyes of those people in some of the most challenging conditions you know so it puts a totally different pressure mm. on you that you know focusing on a solo trip where you're pulling a sled it's just down to you you don't have to convince anybody else you just mm. got to motivate yourself so t- a totally different thing in terms of Mawson and and Shackleton I mean and Mawson was a determined steely individual probably you know by all accounts from the period not the best man manager he just set a positive example of what he expected of people and got on with it himself and you were expected to sort of keep up that was that was that Mm. was you know the way that many have perceived him um Shackleton was really the opposite he was a he was a man manager people person had emotional intelligence as we now call it where he understood his own strengths and weaknesses, but was really intent on getting the best out of people, brought everyone along with him, and in a crisis was the kind of person you wanted by your side. And I guess, you know, both of their techniques, I suppose, ultimately worked. Mawson driven, pulling others along with him, because, of course, the one where he lost both his colleagues was not the only thing he did. He did three other very successful uh, expeditions. Shackleton didn't ultimately achieved the goals he set out to achieve, South Geographic pole um, and, uh, of course, crossing Antarctica. But he did bring everybody home, for which he's now renowned.
0: Mm, that's right. It was a, a magnificent failure or, or something like that, as they call it?
1: I don't think he, he really understood how impactful it would be long-term, because, of course, everyone's now heard of Shackleton because of the fact that he brought everybody home and he pursued the saving everyone with the same conviction as the original goal of crossing Antarctica which was obviously immediately no longer possible with the loss of the ship um yeah it's legendary stuff yeah and made I th- a lot of personal sacrifices to ensure everyone else made it yeah too.
0: yeah and uh, of course um didn't really live much longer himself um after that he was um, no
1: that's right I mean he uh Uh, Many people don't realise that, you know, six years later and he was dead, buried back at South Georgia, which was the scene of his greatest victory. You know, he died of a heart attack. Undoubtedly much of that to do with the, you know, self-imposed stresses of taking on all the responsibility for the survival of 27 men as it was on the endurance trip.
0: We will be back with our conversation after a quick break. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you will also receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au au. Forward slash talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. I suppose both of those um, expeditions, the Mawson recreation, the Shackles, what what difference, I mean, what, what was the effect of uh, achieving those goals yourself on your life and on the direction that that you took after that because obviously i was saying before you 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 were on south georgia you saw those receding glaciers there and in fact the disappearance of one completely i think only left uh, now a glacial lake in its place and 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 you you saw the, the speed with which that was happening. Uh, so that was another one of these very sort of clear visual indicators of what was happening with the warming of the planet. So tell me about your own personal journey after finishing those to, to where you where you are today.
1: Well, Mawson led immediately on to Shackleton, so no, no sooner had I drawn breath and got through that and a book was made and a film was made and you come out of the back end of that and I went straight into pretty much planning planning the Shackleton journey, and I think you're right. I mean, I think there were two dawning realisations that, you know, I, I think it's fair to say when you, you know, reach the summit of a mountain or you cross an ice cap and you 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 finish and you go home and you sit down, um, you, you don't immediately have this epiphany with every single experience you've ever had just kind of uh, appearing clearly in front of you. It takes mm-hmm. many years for the repercussions of all the stuff you've done to really sort of hit home. And it was definitely with um, the case with Shackleton. I mean, I really felt that a lot of the leadership he showed and some of the key take-homes, take-homes as to how that unfolded are ones that you could repurpose and use to apply to some of these global issues we're currently faced with, like in climate change and loss of biodiversity. And so that was the first realisation. The second thing was the, just the sheer amount of documentary evidence that you had showing the change between their trips in the heroic era 100 years ago and, and the situation... Now, and like you say, with South Georgia, crossing that island, our trip was not the same as Shackleton's. I mean, the third glacier that he crossed, which was this um, um, body of ice called the Koenig, is now this a lake. Mm. And that's a very powerful thing to experience. You think, wow, for him, it was a physical barrier to get to the whaling station to cross this thing. For us, it was a wade, mm. a wade across the thigh-deep, you know, yeah. waist-deep lake, and that mighty piece of ice is, is vanished so it's those two things it's the leadership lessons and the and and the before and after that, that you can really use to good effect mm. in the climate piece and i, I think it's fair to say i have been ever since
0: mm. and and you timed uh the 25-0 project to uh coincide with the paris climate talks um in december 2015 so i guess you know what that brings sort of really to that that i that crossover between adventure and and conservation. What uh, role do you think adventure and exploration can play in the communicating of environmental issues?
1: Well, there are many, many ways to do it. I mean, I think for a start it's a very good um, visual way of showing change because you go to Antarctica or the Arctic or the glaciers at the equator that have, you know, dwindling glaciers, those mountains, and, you know, you can visually show what's going on. And if you can attribute the changes you're seeing to us, then it's powerful because seeing, as I say, is is really believing. In terms of um, the leadership stuff, um, you know, the, the the parallels between the expedition experience and what we're now going through, you know, whether it's trying to motivate a team of people to achieve a goal in an expedition context, which is all about understanding everyone's different and their motivations are a bit different, that's a directly transferable bit of information to, say, the climate dialogue, where you're Mm. looking at trying to persuade a bunch of countries to pull as one to achieve a climate outcome, Um, breaking the enormity of the challenge down into manageable pieces, which is a routine sort of expedition thing, Mm is something that we need to do with, a, with an issue like climate. You know, everyone has their role to play. You have to celebrate successes along the way, but the road is long and you need to break it down and keep everybody there with you for the journey. So, look, there are many, many um, examples um, of that kind of thing that I've sort of brought into the Twenty Five Zero project uh, particularly, where I focus a lot of the time on, yes, you've got the visual change, but I also look at the lessons that I've learned from all these years of expeditioning that I think can be applied mm. to those things, and it proved to be very effective at um, at COP21 mm. in Paris. We beamed in from the summit of Mount Stanley in the Ruinsori and said, "Look at this! You know, look at the change. Mm. What are we going to do?" Mm-hmm. And it uh, really got cut through in an otherwise very jaded, busy, noisy space. Yeah. Um, and we had a press conference there that was supported by governments and. The message was seen by everybody
0: and in terms of how you say you know dealing with these what can be really overwhelming problems by breaking them down into um things that i suppose in smaller pieces that you can tackle in some ways you've done that yourself personally haven't you tell us about your latest project which is the fork tree project this is um a, where you yourself are basically rolling up your sleeves and um, and, and really getting down to, to do something very practical uh, about um, biodiversity and, and, and climate change.
1: That's right. I mean, I, look, I've always been a very practical person anyway, um, but I think it's important to, you know, walk the talk. You know, I don't think anybody wants to hear you... Uh, lecturing them about the way they should be living their lives if you're not prepared to stand up and do it yourself. And another role of really good expedition leadership is, or leadership more generally is you don't ask someone to do something you're not prepared to do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the best way to lead is to show a positive example and Fork Tree is is really that, or at least I hope it is. It's um, reforesting an old, um, very, very run-down pastoral property that's had 160, 170 years of misuse overgrazing by cattle and sheep and all the remnant vegetation pretty much destroyed, and I've decided to to rebuild it the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how many people in the corporate and political world see you're doing something tangible like that and they're more prepared to listen to some of your more strategic advice yeah. because you're someone who's actually crunched the numbers and pulled your sleeves up and started planting trees, and they think, well, there's a lot of stuff... Behind the scenes, you must have had to do to get to the point where you're doing the physical stuff. We're prepared to listen to how you're project managing this dream into reality, and and it's it's been um, it's been an uplifting experience.
0: The tell us tell us a little bit more about it. So, into ter- I mean, for for someone like yourself, you're now actually are you you know. Driving a tractor. I mean, what's what, what does it look like? What, what's the how do you go about? I mean, do you get overwhelmed when you look at it and you think, "Wow, this is a, I've, what have I done? <laughs> what have I taken well, on?"
1: Look, it can easily be like that, and um, you do definitely find yourself taking leaves out of the expedition uh, leadership notebook. You think, <laughs> "Okay, break the enormity down, celebrate success, focus on the things you can control," and you find yourself doing that. And when you're faced with a sea of Of sort of you know destruction and you've got uh, you know olives and thistles and salvation jane in the form of introduced stuff you've got very little kind of wildlife apart from birds you've got pines but not much in the way of she-oaks or gums i've got it rubble from many many years of dumping of demolition waste on a bit of the site by the guy who who owned it prior to me and you've just got to focus on individual bits of the jigsaw and remain focused not allow yourself to get distracted because it's very easy to start off you know in the morning doing one thing and then seeing something else and i'll just do Mm. that for five minutes and next thing you're doing some kind of non-essential thing and so you focus on getting individual bits done and ticking them off and i'm kind of a list maker, always have been, you know. Excellent. My list would Love say, list you know, organise, sock draw, solve global poverty. You know, they're two things for the day. Well, at least I can get one of them done and then we'll think about the other one. And you build momentum and so on and so on. So, mm.
0: And did you have to, so it's in South Australia, this um, area? Yeah, it's in the
1: Fleuria Peninsula, which is a fantastic place. It's got pretty good rainfall for SA, which is very dry. In fact, it's got just about the best rainfall in the, in the state down there. And it's got good soil mm. and it's near to... Um, Adelaide, relatively, about an hour away. Um, A lot of eyes on it. That's what you want. And you've got a lot of um, dairy farming, cattle grazing and sheep. And arguably we need a bit less of that, a bit more of the natural stuff. So you've got the right kind of target audience seeing the work you're doing. Mm. And that's important too.
0: Mm. And does that mean including sort of the land owners around, what... Are they show an interest. Do they sort of basically look over the fence and go, you know, what are you doing? Or you know, to that extent, or not?
1: You know, you get you get mixed messages. I'd say the majority of people have been very supportive. One or two are a bit, you know, um, ask questions like, you know, where are your windbreak, your fire breaks? Are you putting fire breaks in between all these trees, and you know, the trees can lead to fire. And I say, yeah, but I mean, lack of trees would be far worse than mm. trees with a slightly increased risk of fire. Um, yes I've got them and you know I think once you start to engage with people they they listen when they can see you're out there toiling away doing the hard yards yourself and they can see you've got a bit of thinking has gone into what you're doing uh, and they can see some of the benefits even for their livestock frankly while the livestock are still there you know they get more shade shelter from the wind mm. actually it improves productivity in the dairy herds near my place the fact that I've got trees on my land once they're grown mm. So uh, you, you sell to people based on what you think they will want to hear to try and garner their interest and get their respect. And again, it's a bit, it's a bit Shackleton, you know. Yeah. You pitch the message according to the person who, you know, to the audience, speak mm-hmm. their language, yeah. and um, I think I'm winning people's trust.
0: So it's, it sounds like a very long-term, And when you talk about planting trees and trees growing, trees don't grow in five minutes, so you're in it for the long-term, what, what, what kind of... St- long-term strategy are you thinking 20 years or more or
1: it won't take 20 to plant everything I did 3,800 this winter um, and the parcel of land I've got can take about 25,000 I've got 4,000 slated to put in this winter coming Um, I haven't thought about year three yet because it's dependent on what sort of summer we get how well the stuff I've planted already takes if if the blue gums and the pink gums and the she oaks which are obviously all trees take and by year 3 they might start to provide a bit of shade you can start to put in some middle story uh you know grasses and things like that which if you put them in now will just be out competed by all the introduced mm-hmm. grasses so you've got to create some shade um with with trees as the upper story Two or three years down the line, we'll look at how well they're going, and then think about what to put in next. If that still hasn't sort of killed off the introduced grasses, you maybe put in a few more trees and and wait.
0: And do you does your family get involved? Do your friends come over and and you do you get help with it, or is it a sort of? Yes,
1: interview? look, you know, I've had a lot of help from some what you might think as being unlikely quarters. So AIA Health Insurance, for example, they are worried about climate change impacts on health. So. Uh, they're very interested in helping with tree planting because they can see there's benefits there, apart from it being the right thing to do. The property sector, quite a number of organisations have said, look, we know we've got a big carbon footprint. Can we buy some trees?
0: Yeah, so it's like um, carbon offsetting.
1: Uh, it is. You look, yeah, look, mm-hmm. I've got a simple methodology. It's not accredited. Um, they, A lot of these organisations have supported me have physically come down there and seen what we're doing and love what what's being done. They know I don't get paid. Nobody does who works there apart from, uh, you know... A couple of uh, tradies doing things like, you know, a bit of fencing uh, mm-hmm. with me. Um, no salaries to support just goes into the raw costs of making the place good again, really. And um, that's brought a lot of respect. So, yeah, they are carbon offsets, but they're carbon offsets based on me working out what the organisation's carbon footprint is and then telling them how many trees they'd need mm. to, to do it. And look, the beauty of this whole project is you can just repeat it and scale it. Mm. because I'm looking at how we now measure how much carbon a block of land sucks out of the atmosphere more simply, how we can do that more simply than the current arrangement, which is very complicated mm. and puts off farmers from following suit because it's too costly and too time-consuming. So it's not just what I'm doing, it's about how you can repeat this elsewhere.
0: And you're also creating habitat for native species as well, so offsetting biodiversity loss.
1: That's right. And look, we've got some really good bird life there. We've got some cockatoos, we've got um, lorikeets, we've got galars, we've got, you know, some hawks. We've got some really nice bird life returning. And, of course, they're seed distributors and, you know, they're the first ones to come back. Um, Once you've got them, you can start to encourage other things. But the first... Mm. First cab off the ranks, definitely the vegetation.
0: Well, it sounds like a, a, an ambitious project, but I think you've never shied away from anything like that in your life. And um, but it also sounds like a nice ta- place to spend your time as well. It's and wonderful. We know that the great benefits of spending time out in the great outdoors and out in nature as well.
1: I'll be there on Friday, and I can't wait. You know, uh, you know, mm. you, every weed you pull out, you think that's another. Introduce thing that shouldn't be here that's not here anymore and it'll allow something native to take its place and you know you may well have a lot of problems happening in the world today but not on your patch mm. and that's very satisfying and um, others can follow suit as i say there's many ways to get involved
0: well i wish you well with it tim jarvis thank you Thanks, Chris. and uh, thank you very much for coming in and sharing your uh, adventures and your hopes the planet with with us today on Talking Australia. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email podcast at Geographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners, including 10% off all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time.